Thanks for tuning in. This is episode number 98. Uh, I want to thank you for taking the time to join me on this episode. Um, If this is your first time, I pray that uh, you find something very special in it. Uh, If you've been with me for some time now, I pray that this has uh, been an encouragement and building to your life, your spiritual life, your relationship with the Lord. Um, And perhaps if if you don't know the Lord yet personally, that you would come to know him through the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and, uh, that he would uh, continue to be a impact in your life and changing everything about it. So today the episode um, is going to be a teaching that I had given in um, the the warehouse gathering that uh, we've had recently, and it's titled "Teach Us to Pray," and it really kind of came out of um, a t- some time in Luke eleven where uh, one of the disciples te- uh, come to Jesus to ask him that question, teach us to pray. And uh, so I pray that it's an encouragement and that uh, God speaks through, through me uh, to you. So many of us have in our mind conclusions about prayer. Many of those thoughts are biblically grounded, and some thoughts perhaps are things we have concluded based on a variety of situations and occurrences that have led us to believe certain things about prayer. Now, I think everyone or most people listening would nod their head at the sheer importance of prayer. Yet, most of us, myself included, pray far too little, nor do we feel the urgency that we should for prayer as it relates to the Christian's mission and ministry. The Bible has much to say about prayer and should be the basis for the root of our understanding. There are those unique individuals to whom God has entrusted detailed, deepened revelation beyond the, we'll say, average Christian's discovery. While we could discover many, some popular and some unknown, the one that I have some minuscule awareness of is E.M. Bounds. Edward McKendry Bounds. He was born August 15th, 1835, and lived until August 24th, 1913. Bounds wrote extensively on prayer, and from time to time I revisit his writings, among others, to draw unique insights from. Now, we keep Scripture always in sight, because it is by Scripture that we can cling to truth. We assess the validity of what we hear by the written word of God. Let me remind you that the depth of revelation that you and I currently have has reached the point to where it is not solely dependent upon the singular effort of you and I. In fact, I would argue that you are enlightened first and foremost by the grace of God. And secondly, because the efforts of men and women who have sown into the mind of your heart. Those conclusions and understandings are ever-evolving. Just think back where you were one year ago, five years ago, ten or twenty years ago. Are you in the same place? Has your understanding grown, 
changed or otherwise matured? Well, I hope so. God is infinite, and so discovery in Him is infinite. If you're not growing, you're stagnant. Don't be stagnant. All the while we grow in understanding, we cling to the Bible as our road marker, our anchor, our framework, our measuring tape, and our template. Hopefully you see the symbolism in all of these. The written word of God is the hand we hold of the Holy Spirit that allows us to explore the halls of discovery. Hear this closely. All things revealed to you are not by necessity truth because you have a mind that is open to both good and bad influences, heavenly, divine, and earthly evil. We must, therefore, weigh and assess. This is done by the Word of God, not by what sounds right or feels right. Remember, Proverbs fourteen twelve: there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. So what could seem right may in fact be death. Don't judge by seem, judge by the word of God. To know what is written, we must be reading what is written. We then have the litmus test to judge what is true and right. Men and women may say a lot, even well-intentioned, but if it violates the word of God, reject it. The disciples approached Jesus and said, Teach us to pray just as John taught his disciples. This is Luke 11.1. 1. To my knowledge, this is the only time a disciple asked Jesus to teach them something. You know, many times they, they learned by watching. They learned by witnessing and then mimicking. I'm also inclined to believe that the specific wording is meaningful to us if we can see it. This, this disciple said, teach us to pray. They, they didn't ask, teach us how to pray. While this is a subtle difference, I do believe this is a meaningful difference. I believe this is a petition not for the mechanics of prayer, but for the act of prayer. It is this first act toward God that brings us to some level of understanding regarding prayer. They asked the Son of God for insight into praying. It is from the place of desire that we are privy to the how. Consider this. The mechanics of something, that is, how it is to work or be, the mechanics of something without a desire for the thing is a flat, cold, ineffectual, and doubtful thing. You may know how a marriage works, but without a desire for that marriage, it will be a cold and lifeless prison of a thing. I can see this essence in the request of the disciple to Christ as saying something like the following. Teach us the life of prayer. It is when desire is born that we are more readily put to good use the mechanics of a thing. 
Notice, that's exactly what Jesus did give them. Mechanics. You may ask, how do you mean that? Notice, when you pray, Jesus said, say, dot, dot, dot. When you pray, say this. That's, so that is somewhat, somewhat mechanical. But, but notice this. When I say mechanics, though, think, think more along the lines of flow. Listen to Jesus' response. When you pray, say, Our Father in heaven, hallowed or holy, be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us day by day our daily bread and forgive us our sins for we also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. So that's Luke 1, or I'm sorry, Luke 11, 2 through 4. Now, a valid question that we are to walk away with here is, was the point of Jesus giving this prayer to be a literal expression that we are to parrot for all time. And you think of a parrot, you, you, um, you tell them something and they just repeat the phrase. So was the point of what Jesus was giving this prayer, was it to be a literal expression that we are to mimic for, for, all, for all prayers? Now, the reason I can say I think no is because we find this prayer no further in his documented prayers throughout Scripture, although we can see this form present in other Scripture, namely John 17. In fact, we could stop saying that this is the Lord's Prayer because in it is a confession of sin, and we know that Jesus did not sin. I believe Jesus gave his disciples this prayer as a framework for prayer. Notice the first steps of this Luke 11 prayer. Our Father. God is Father. It is relational and personal. God being our Father means that we are His children. And as children, we are positioned to be inheritors of His estate. Recall the parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15 that Jesus told. The, the older brother is mad that the younger is being celebrated after squandering the father's property with prostitutes and frivolous living. The father tells the older brother, My son, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. Now, the son had access to everything that the father had. Here's another one. Jesus is talking to his disciples in Luke 12 regarding worry and anxiousness about the things of life. And he tells them, Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. That's Luke 12, 32. There are so many implied realities embedded within just those first two words of that prayer, Our Father. Progressing on, Jesus says, Our Father in heaven, for those of you who love the King James Version, who art in heaven. 
This reminds us that he's in heavenly places. That is to say, a place of high and lifted up. Isaiah records his vision in chapter 6, verse 1, which says, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train, or you could say him, of his robe. Anyone else here thinking about the issue, the woman with the issue of blood, touching the hem of his garment? And the train of his robe filled the temple. Isaiah said again in chapter 66, verse 1, saying, Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. Thrones also speak of reign, rule, authority. Psalm 47, 8 says, God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. The location of heaven speaks to us of the eternal attributes of God. Psalm 45, 6 says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Remember what John reveals to us in Revelation 22, 1-5. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will, will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no lamp or light or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Hmm. It's powerful. Next, we have our Father in heaven. Holy is your name. Now, to even attempt for me to put to words to that phrase, holy is your name, is such a task that makes me want to cover my mouth and sit in silence. How can I, such a weak and flawed creature, define someone who is altogether different, one who is other than me? Though, considering also the fact that I, we, his children, are made in his image, the Old Testament, namely the, the tabernacle and the instruments for sacred use, are defined in Scripture as holy. Now, we know that they possess no divine nature in them. They are holy because they are unlike other utensils and set for a special purpose. God, too, is unlike any other. His name is unlike any name. His majesty is unlike any other. His power and might is unlike any other. We find, too, in Genesis when God set apart the Sabbath day, calling it holy. The Sabbath day was set apart from the other days and made for a special purpose. The Levitical law brought the commandment, Be ye holy, for I am holy. So, 
not just other than and set apart for a special use, but holy is also a state of being. It's very easy to think be holy, as Jesus, as God said, be holy is about what we do. However, the command doesn't say do holiness for I am holy. This is where many of us enter the race of futility. We try very hard to enter into doing without first winning the victory over being, which then allows the doing to flow as a byproduct. Our identity should never be how well we are doing. Our identity is a son or daughter of the Father through Jesus Christ if we belong to him. Holy is a state of being. You become what you behold. Fix your gaze upon the one who is holy and unlike any other. Keep your gaze fixed in a world of distractions. Give of your time, energy, and resources to God, Most High, and fellowship and feed on Him until your tastes change and your hunger develops. Sometimes we don't know how hungry we are until we begin to eat. Taste and see that the Lord is good. His name is unlike any other name. His name is set apart. It's righteous. It's trustworthy. I'm going to read Psalm 99 because I believe that it's um, in light of what we're talking about here, God being holy. Um, it, it sheds some wonderful uh, description upon that. So Psalm 99 says, The Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. The king in his might loves justice. You have established equity You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at his footstool. Holy is he. Moses and Aaron were among his priests. Samuel also was among those who called upon his name. They called to the Lord and he answered them. In the pillar of the cloud he spoke to them. They kept his testimonies and the statute that he gave them. Our Lord, O Lord, our God, you answered them. You were a forgiving God to them, but an avenger of their wrongdoings. Exalt the Lord, our God, and worship at his holy mountain. For the Lord, our God, is holy. Such a great reminder. Um, I love the book of Psalms. There is so, there's such a richness in it. So we have thus far our Father who art in heaven. Hallowed, holy be your name. Now, the first part of this template for how we approach God in prayer is reminding ourselves who God is. God knows perfectly well who he is. He does not need our reminding. It is for us. It allows us to come to right thinking 
before we approach his majesty. Next, he says, your kingdom come, your will be done. Now, before we pray requests, here we are reinforcing his rule, his reign, his desires fulfilled here on earth as it is in heaven. What would happen if our prayers were consumed with praying the heart of God? How would those moments change the whole course of our intercession and encounter with God? I would encourage you to, in, in your prayer, ask God what it is that He wants. Ask Him what would please His heart. What could you do for Him? Just pause for one moment to think if with our own children, rather than them come to you asking for something, they came and asked, what could they do for you? How much does that fill your heart with the warmth of all pleasure? Ask God, how can you make his dreams come true? How much does that fill your heart with the warmth of all pleasure? How might those prayers of the heart of God change the trajectory of our petitions to God? I can say with all accuracy and confidence that if we would pray God's heart, we can doubtless obtain every word we ask for. How do I know this? 1 John 5, 14 and 15 says, If we ask anything according to His will, He will do it. If it's in His heart to do and we ask Him to do it, rest assured it is granted. Consider it done. That ought to make you feel like shouting because that is one massive blank check. Ask God what it is that His heart desires. Begin to seek out God's heart and watch and see. He will rest on you and fill your heart with wonder and his pleasure. You may ask, how do I learn what his will and desires are? Let him speak it to you. Find it in his word. Discover what he desires in the Bible. Learn of his ways in the writings of God. Also, like any earthly relationship, spend time with him and learn of him. Remember this passage, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It's Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30. That's the King James Version. Because I want to point out a part in that. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. Many translations turn this into learn from me. But I think learning of him has a, has a very special thing embedded in it. Coming to him and Placing his yoke upon you allows you to learn of him. That is to say, who God is, his nature, his goodness, his kindness, his tenderness, his mercy, steadfastness, and strength. Did you know that you can put an untrained ox with a trained ox in a yoke together, and the untrained ox would take lessons from the trained one? 
we learn of Jesus and from Jesus when we, the untrained ox, learn from and of the perfect one, Jesus, and allow ourselves to be perfectly, easily, and surely yoked to our master, Jesus the Christ. We don't just learn about him. We learn from him, of him. It's relational intertwining. It's a spinning dance, a twirling, a hand-in-hand fluid motion of lead, follow, and trust. It's Jesus, our master lead, that gives us sure footing and strength to manage something that we have no business tackling ourselves. I read that an untrained ox can pull about 2,000 pounds. A trained ox can pull about 5,000 pounds. But together, they can pull about 10,000 pounds. And even a step further, two fully trained oxen, if kept step to step, can pull about 15,000 pounds. Now, does this sound familiar? You, you see that the, the, it's not additive, it's actually exponential. Now, remember, Leviticus 26.8 says, Five of you will chase a hundred, and a hundred of you will chase ten thousand. This shows the exponential, effectual relationship the Lord God provides when He works alongside you. We can discover this effectual relationship by way of prayer. So, in closing, when the disciple came to Jesus and said, teach us to pray. I believe what, what Jesus gave them was a way of flowing. And embedded within what he gave them is a rich and vast plethora to discover, even more so and beyond what I have discovered and shared thus far. And when we get into relationship with, with God, He desires to pour into us understanding and revelation and knowing. Not knowing of facts and things, but knowing Him. And by knowing Him, we can come into this place of intimate connectedness. And He begins to whisper to us things, showing us things by way of the Holy Spirit. And so I would encourage you to dig into his word. We can discover who he is through his written word, through the Bible. We discover who he is through listening and taking time to engage with him. Because we can never desire him more than he desires us. And when we take the time, when we carve out those spaces of time for him, then I can just, I just imagine him like kind of a kid in a candy shop, just so excited and full of anticipation. You know, David said, who am I that you would be mindful of me? And, and that's the, the thing that leaves our jaws dropped wide open to think that God, most high creator of all things, would desire us to such a degree that 
would really blow our minds. And so we get to participate with, we get to commune and fellowship with, with God who, with God who desires to commune and fellowship with you. What a relationship that is available. And I believe that when, when Jesus gave those parameters, those, the, the framework for praying, we come into this right place of mind and we can then enter into this divine relationship called prayer. Now I realize too, sometimes in the, in the busyness of the day, all you have are these fleeting moments. And, and God understands that. He's actually excited that you would take that 30 seconds in your busy day to just interact with him quickly and briefly. You know, the Bible says that we can come boldly before him. And, and while that's absolutely, absolutely true and encouraging, you know, we don't have to come to him like this beat down dog, but coming to him in this right state of mind remembering who he is and remembering who we are in him and our our absolute necessity of being connected to him when we can keep those proper thinkings and uh, frameworks and anchors in our mind then we can come to him and commune with him um, i think more rightly um by all means, please continue to even give those little moments of time here and there as you can. But I believe the majority of our time, we need to be carving out intentional time to come to Him in within the proper pretext and context and, and, and just entering into remembering who He is. And... Um, Perhaps this has given you a little insight into the Luke 11 prayer. I pray that it's a blessing, and uh, and I hope that you can take and apply some some of these things that uh, we've shed light on today. That they're a blessing and encouragement, and uh, just discover God's word and the rich vastness that is within it. So I pray this is a blessing, and we will see you on the next one. I would trade a million lifetimes for a moment here with you, and in your house I hold.